We are going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die, because they are never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grains of Arabia. Certainly, those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively exceeds the set of actual people. In the teeth of those stupefying odds, it is you and I, in our ordinariness, that are here. We privileged few, who won the lottery of birth against all odds. How dare we whine at our inevitable return to that prior state from which the vast majority have never stirred. The only thing which is guaranteed in the time you're living is that that thing is going to end. How is it that this thing, the only thing that which is guaranteed to be considered by us as a surprise? There's a fundamental difference between what you believe to be the case, how you interpret the world when you haven't reflected enough and when you start to do so. Mm. There's not a limit to how much you could reflect about life and death, but realizing that there's a mortality, there's an end to, to this journey that we are having, mm gives everything a, a fundamental change. It's not like you were thinking that it wasn't going to end. Mm. Maybe you were thinking of it before in an implicit manner, but it was not explicit. It wasn't, there wasn't a thought saying, I see it plausible that I will live forever. Sure. Like some people have done. I think there was a quote from a famous person who said, I intend to live forever, so, so far so good. <laughs> and okay, yeah, maybe... Maybe that person is right, but the odds of that being true is are like one out of a hundred billion humans that have existed. So that's probably not going to be the case. But th this quote from Confucius makes me think and reflect about the fact that if something is temporary, like everything, and you can analyze it and experience it while it lasts, why not do it more? Why not do it with more dedication to it? Why not be more aware of it? Why not avoid the by default option of just going through life in an autopilot manner and just put the switch off the autopilot and be the most aware you can in order to take all the juice out of this experience that we have uh, that we have been granted in some way. What do you think about death? What is death? So for me, obviously, it's going to be a question like this. I don't think humans know. All we see is the effects of death. Anything outside of either special revelation or ignorance, it's all just con conjecture. It's all just like just trying to figure it out in the dark and working through it and what we can grasp. So I do believe in special revelation. I do believe that the God of creation has revealed himself clearly to us to give us the narrative of death, uh, to give us the understanding and the context of death. And what we see in that narrative in uh, Genesis 1 is a whole different set of categories to understand what life is. And so life itself is life because it is united with God. God is life. He's eternal. He is base reality. Since God is base reality, He exists that He exists. That's literally His name in the Bible. I am that I am. I exist that I exist. And, and so, He is life itself. And He has chosen to create creatures to share life with, not because He needed 
others to share life with. Solely by mercy and grace and love, he decided to share the life that he has with his creatures uh, that, that, that he has created. And so the story goes that God created creatures and the primary creature that he created was made in his image, and that was humans, men. And so humans were to share in God's glory, to receive the life of God, and to be in an atmosphere, an environment where God's place of life united with his created ordered life. And so you have the spiritual and the physical together in one place. And this is the concept of the Garden of Eden. This is the concept of what earth really was supposed to be. It's the place where God's spiritual world and his created world have complete unity. And as God and his kingdom was on earth and everything was here on earth, everything had perfect order. Everything had life because God himself, his very presence was there. And so, uh, God says, this is what I always want, is this unity between my kingdom and your kingdom. I give you your kingdom to go and express yourself and grow and create in my image, but as it's unified with my kingdom, so that I can have uh, the ability to give you free life forever, eternally, in that perfect environment. Uh, but what happened was that uh, God intrinsically desired humans to make a choice in that. You can either continue your earthly world uh, united with me in my kingdom, underneath my authority and rules and love, and therefore receiving life eternal, or you can separate the kingdoms, and you can separate your kingdom from my kingdom. And then if it's your kingdom, you can make up your rules, your way, your direction, your desires, your future. But in doing so, uh, the choice is that as you separate, you will have your freedom, but there will be death. Because there's a separation now, because God's presence will not be there like it was before. And so, naturally, when God's presence is not there, you naturally have the state of devolving into death. You naturally have mutations that go against creation's order. <laughs> now you have uh, a state where uh, the order, the physical order, breaks down. And it also happens that the spiritual order breaks down, but that's another part of the story. But the physical order is, it, it literally says in the Hebrew that our human sin goes into the earth. It starts to break down all of reality. And so all of reality gets affected by humans' choice to separate their kingdoms. And now humans have the curse of death over them. They will die. Their human experience will come to an end on a physical level, but also on a spiritual level because of that great separation. And so when Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, uh, when Cain uh, did his sin of murder, which we all have the roots of that anger within us, <laughs> so we're just as guilty as he is, God curses him and says, you got to be far away from your parents now, and you have to go live your own life far away. And a part of that, God, he looks at God and says, this is too heavy for me. For the rest of my days, I will be separated from your presence. I'll be separated from who you are. And it's just further showing that there's this great separation now between God and humans. And when we separate the two, uh, the life gets sucked out of us. And so death now is a state of living in this world and without the presence of God sustaining us fully to have the life that we were originally meant to have. So death is not a concept that's original to what does it mean to be human. 
It's now something that is in a context, in a story. And now we have to experience it. I think there are two logical fallacies there in your argument. You're claiming that there is some kind of ethereal substance that gives life its appearance out of death. Let's say you have a what we would consider to be a dead substance and mm -hmm. out of it you can create life just due to the elan vital or whatever you want to put into it that would make that substance be alive. I am composed of some atoms that were previously not part of me. There has been a process of that material becoming me. Mm -hmm. And that, according to you, your view, could only happen if there is some ethereal substance in it which gives it capacity to become into life. So you see it as a black or white distinction there in that there's a huge difference between what is alive and what is dead. And I do not see that black or white distinction. I think that the, the difference between death and life is a gray and it's a transition which get from one point to the other. It's similar to the electromagnetic spectrum. The difference between blue and yellow is not a sudden thing. The fact that we have a, a concept, an idea or a word for white or not white, that white it's the combination of colors, but for blue, that's only a social construct, a construct which is embedded in our biology. We are biased towards developing those ideas to represent certain colors and there has been evidence that proves that among all of societies in earth uh, of humans they develop words in a certain order i think the first one is red the second one is green then blue there's a certain order of colors which is developed and the same thing occurs with life and death we have some social constructs or biological constructs which make us see a dichotomy where there's none. And that, so that's the, the first argument which I would like to push back on, that there's no ethereal substance working, making what you consider to be alive, be distinct, fundamentally distinct from something which you would consider to be dead. The difference is just a matter of how matter is arranged. You could convert, you could, in principle, whether we have the technology or not, But this is uh, a fact that we could develop this if we had the appropriate technology. We could copy the distribution of atoms in, in my body and do a copy of it in, a, in, a, in an analogy of the thesis ship, which if you, if you replace a, a piece of wood each time, when does it stop being a ship? We have mm -hmm. to go into identity and what it means into, in, in order to be able to define what life is. Mm -hmm. And the, the definition of life is horrible. The biologists have been trying to do this for centuries and they have only been able to gather a few facets which a lot of living things seems to do they they reproduce they they feed themselves they they forage for resources in their environment they protect themselves from other things they, they, there's a list of features that biologists have agreed in that living beings do but that is just a super shitty way of defining a rigorous concept that's analogous to what would occur if we try to define free will. We would come to a list of facts that people who have free will, or according to us have free will, would do in comparison to things that do not have free will wouldn't do. And then we would enlist those and from that have a definition. But that's a horrible definition because there's other things which are in the gray, like viruses, for example, in the case of the definition of life, that do not have a lot of the facets, a lot of the characteristics that 
biologists claim that living beings have. So they have to say that viruses are not alive, even if they have their genome and they are able to reproduce and they are they have a they do a lot of things which living beings supposedly do, but not others. And this this shows that it's not a black or white thing. There's a, a spectrum, and then so that was the. Can the, I respond to that? Oh yeah, sure. A little bit. Yeah, I think there's a there's a fundamental fallacy in that thinking, though, where you zoom in to the world that we perceive so much that all you see is atoms. Atoms aren't changing, <laughs> but you zoom out and you see a greater narrative. And so, what's the point? Are we living in a zoomed in way? and defining our human experience through that spectrum? Or are we zooming out and seeing the world as we perceive it and knowing that there have been people in our life that no longer are there? That there is a separation on the zoomed out level of a narrative going on, a story going on. Now we can talk about death in a zoomed in way, like as just atoms and energy, chemicals and carbon. And you're right, uh, on a zoomed in way, uh, looking at these fine details really doesn't give us the story of what's really going on. It just gives us a more confusing, more gray. It's a world that we don't, that we, we have no idea how it affects the greater story that we're experiencing. Because all we see is just little dots bouncing around. <laughs> that, that's only temporary. My ignorance of how the functioning of a social rule works, let's mm -hmm. say there's at the, at the root of science is physics and mathematics. Those are at the root. And then there's biology, no, before it's chemistry, then biology, mm -hmm. and then the social sciences. Sure. Those are the emergent out of biology and interactions between biological entities. The fact that I cannot reason about the nature of social interactions with the principles of physics doesn't mean that I will never be able to do so. It's, it just means that there hasn't been enough Consilience, as the word that I told you the other day, that joins all the all the branches of knowledge. Sure, sure, sure. I agree with that. Now, I'm just saying that that uh, when we're talking like a concept of death, such, such a natural social idea, where we're understanding death in lots of ways, something that you have to face in your life. I say those terms in a very <laughs> almost like almost like presupposed uh, dogmatic way. Like I'd say you're going to die one day. Uh, your, yeah, your body will die one day. What happens to the essence of Alex? That's a whole other conversation. But one day your body will die. Now, if I zoom in on you and say and talk about electrons and neurons and those kind of things, like, okay, maybe there's another conversation there. But the greater conversation is talking about you have an experience within your body and one day your body will die. How does that make you feel? <laughs> it's like, so it's like uh, to zoom it in so much and say there's no such thing as a concept of death and just make it gray. Death is just, uh, it doesn't, it's not real. It's just an illusion. I would say that that's running away from a real situation that you're going to be face to face with. Yeah. And it would be somewhat hypocritical to claim that death is uh, an illusion or the, the, the binarity of between death and life is an illusion. Why sure. not claiming that there's, if I'm claiming that there's that the difference between life and death is an illusion, sure. I'm also claiming that there's a binarity or a yeah, there's a horrible experience of like I've I've been, I've had lots of my friends die, you know, and I know that right this second I can't go have a conversation with them. No, no, I, I wasn't yeah. I wasn't going there. I was <laughs> going to the argument, my fallacious argument about the fact that my my argument would be fallacious if I didn't apply this logic to, far enough, hmm. and claiming that there's no binarity between life and death should also come with the 
claim that there's no binarity or dichotomy between illusion and non-illusion. There's, if I'm saying that there's something which is wrong, I'm saying that there's something which is right. Mm -hmm. So there's no way of getting away from believing that there's something right. Mm -hmm. You cannot debunk absolutely everything. There's always something you have to grasp in order to be able to claim that some other thing is, is wrong. And me saying that that thing is not a binary thing because it's an illusion, maybe if applied this logic far enough, I, I, my intuition tells me that I should also apply to the fact that there's no illusions as a as a principle, that the representation we have in our heads of how the world works, if it is fallacious, like in the case of believing that there's a difference, a fundamental difference between gray and b- between blue and yellow, believing that is, is false because there's not a fundamental difference. It's just a, a, a transition. Maybe applying the same thing, the same logic to to the life and the thing could also be applied to the distinction between uh, to the truth of my claims that there's binarity or not. Things should also be a gray in the difference between those two claims that I'm having. I'm saying there's some things which are not binary because and it's an illusion which makes the binarity exist and the same thing could apply to the self or free will as, as I believe. And so yeah, that, that that was my first my first argument that it is not possible to claim or it is incorrect to claim that there's an ethereal substance which gives life its nature because the difference between life and death could be reduced to more fundamental principles which could be replicated apart from it. And even if we do not understand consciousness almost at all, we only know that there's some neur- neural correlates. Um, but our no our current knowledge about what makes consciousness emerge out of a seeming non-conscious piece of meat is not rigorous enough to give you a good definition of it but even if that's not the case i can i can still in principle believe that there's some explanation which would be satisfactory to explain in a reductionist way what consciousness is so that that's that was my first claim and then there, there's another one which is epistemological if you're saying that as you started this conversation saying that there's a union between God and the universe which makes it be able to live and have an eternal nature which is only derived from the eternity of God in itself. If that has to be believed in or has to be voluntarily interacted with in a parsimonious way or in a in a way that you believe in that the, that thing is those narratives are true and all alternatives are false, I think that dichotomy is also false. If you say that we cannot find truth because we are too gullible, we are too prone to biases and not discovering what truth is because truth is located in somewhere else, there has to have been a process of detecting what truth is inside of you. Mm -hmm. You had to have a, a sensor in some way that told you what is true and what is not true. And you're not subjecting that sensor to the scrutiny required to determine what is truth outside of your sensor. The thing doing analysis cannot be analyzed simultaneously Mm -hmm. while it is being used to analyze some other thing. Mm -hmm. So doing a retrospective analysis of that, you can conclude that you cannot say that you cannot find truth apart from something because your measuring system is fooled or is biased while also claiming that you found truth with your same biased measuring system. How would it be that 
I am biased, claiming that there's some reductionist scientific means by which we could understand the universe, mm -hmm. but you are not, while the same thing that made us conclude these two not that opposite ideas, because I think we they, there is a huge overlap between you and me in our views. How could it be that the differences among you and me could be claimed to be false when the root is almost the same? We are both, mm -hmm. we both count with the same resources to judge. Yeah, and once again, I'm not, I'm not saying that people cannot discover what's true. I would just come to the conclusion that all truth is God's truth in the end. So whatever humans do find and discover to be true, they're just tapping into a greater narrative, but they're also going to be not seeing the full picture of that narrative without relationship. Since there's a relational aspect, uh, you can have a character within a story and he can discover uh, and, and the, every, everything he can imagine through his perception and abilities, every fact about the story, uh, but that doesn't mean that he knows the author, the intent, the motive, and the greater story. He has to get outside of his own story to be able to do that. And to get outside of the human story, to get outside of the universe story, um, is a whole other way of experiencing and understanding the story that we're in. And so that's the, that's the gap. Um, and even in the Bible, in two, in two places, it talks about how humans have the God's given people the ability to, to discover what's true. You can go and I, I do think like I mean mathematics is like is like the language of God for the universe. Uh, it's beautiful uh, how everything is ordered. Uh, it's beautiful how everything is put together in, in its in its way. Um, and so yeah, as you reductionistically uh, discover things, you're going to find lots of order, lots of things working together, lots of lots of things on a very uh, 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 deep quantum level, working with things on a cosmological level. I mean, you're just you're going to be seeing the connection because it's a designed ordered system, and it's a really detailed design order system. And so as you go deeper and deeper, that's what science is science started. We said we can start science and because God makes sense and, and reason makes sense because God gave it to us. So therefore, let's start science. <laughs> let's do science because we live in a world that's, that we can comprehend. And that's what's so amazing is that we can comprehend what we, what we discover. I think we are in the same position. We're stuck in the same epistemological narrative. You presuppose the existence of a, an entity, an all-powerful entity which gave or created or designed the universe based upon the, the world that the reality that we see yeah yeah and, and i presuppose the existence of nature the universe itself by itself that's what i would consider to be god nature is i would equate god and nature that's what i would say you claim that there's something superior to nature which created nature but i claim that nature is itself what exists so both of us has a, have a presupposition that something exists and nothing created it. And we cannot argue about how that thing was created. I cannot explain how the universe was created. You cannot explain how God was created. It wasn't created. That's it. Yeah. The same. I could, I could say the exact same arguments that you used to, to argue There's about... There's philosophical problems with saying that the, the, the world that we live in never had a beginning or never created itself. And, and wouldn't, wouldn't you find those with God? No. Because in his nature, it is the so the, the world that we live in necessitates that there is a mind behind the design. There's a mind behind the order, and so looking into what kind of 
being, this would need to be one and has to be outside of time and space. It, it necessitates it by the, by the very reality that we live in, that it cannot be the God within the, the order. It has to be the God without, and so he's the one that creates and orders and puts together. And so he has to be omnipotent. He has to be omnipresent. He has to be in his nature eternal. He has to be uh, um, uh, uh, all-powerful to be able to do this. So these are just like the prerequisites of, uh, of the God that must exist based upon the reality that we live in. And so it kind of creates this scenario. And then you have, that's just a philosophical concept that just kind of floats on its own. Then I, I obviously take it to the historical reality of we have no idea who that presupposed idea of God could be unless he reveals himself to us. And that's where we have the incarnation of Jesus, God himself revealing who he is to us on a relational, interpersonal way. And it just so happens that he cares a lot about things like morality and justice, <laughs> which we always cared about anyway. And now it makes sense why. And that is also an enormously, enormously analogous to how morality emerged in different species and in different tribes or uh, ethnicities of humanity. Uh, all, all, all of, lots of primates, or all, all of them, have a sense of morality of what is correct and what is not correct. And that's because there's some rules of th thumb that you can use in order to maximize the fitness or the ability of the species to spread that if you do not follow them, you would reduce the ability of that to exist. So the maximization of existing existence only goes through morality and believing that there's some certain things that some things that are right and some other things which are wrong, like robbing. We believe that robbing is bad and not robbing is good. That has come from the same place that primates have come into the conclusion that not respecting the hierarchy of the what is from whom in a in a chimpanzee tribe let's say not not, not tribe but they're in their collective they, they have some rules which shouldn't be violated the same thing applies to humans but at a more complex way because we are super cooperators and we are and the complexity of our society is is not matched by any other any any other society or collective in nature but yeah i think the the fact that it is believed that The fact that morality emerges does not need a religious background. It just needs the ne the necessity, as you said, of that in order to be to exist. Well, I would I would definitely say that it, w it does necessitate a <laughs> a religious background because the very nature of reality would comes from the very nature of God, and so the very concept itself of the reality that we live in is based upon who that God is. Now, I do believe that there is a separation now between creation and God. So things are confused and broken, distorted, and and mutated into a place where it's disconnected from its original intended purpose and design and function. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we see all kinds of destructive elements in the world. That's why we see disease. That's why we see just the brokenness of the world that we live in. That's why evil exists. Um, in the world. And that's why we can say things like evil exists, because there is an intrinsic idea of oughtness and goodness that it should be within us. And so uh, it violates that when we see that in the world. Um, and there is a difference between the, the, the animals in us and us and, and finding moral first cause in evolutionary biology is very difficult. <laughs> 
and it's not just based upon uh, uh, social pressure on, on on primates and these kind of things. Finding moral first cause altruism, these kind of things, is very difficult. It uh, is not. It, uh, it is. It there is. There has been huge research. Uh, a book by Paul Bloom is a is a best representation of this called Just Babies. And it talks about how morality emerges naturally. We have an instinct of morality. And it doesn't only happen with humans, but with a lot of other primates and a lot of other animals, which makes the a similar thing which happened with the Copernical principle that we discovered that we were not the center of the universe. We are not the crown of creation. Evolution debunks that and shows that we're just... We have features which are different from other animals, but other animals also have features which are different from ours. And there's nothing fundamental which is making humanity be at the crown of creation. It's just... Why, uh, would, you, why would you say that? Because it's... Because it's, you have to define what the goal is. Reproduction. And okay, okay. You're wrong on that goal. <laughs> I'm just saying. So you, you're, you're defining a goal that you have a bias towards why is that the goal because it couldn't be otherwise <laughs> okay why if your objective if your objective was not fundamentally survival and reproduction i'm not claiming that these are the fundamental objectives of my person but are the fundamental objectives of biology in its nature it cannot be otherwise because if it was not it wouldn't exist how many species do not exist well an infinite amount and why do not they exist because they weren't as prone to reproduce and survive as others that exist did. I think it's an intrinsic part of the story, but definitely not the center driving goal of the story. Obviously, I have a different story, and I think righteousness hmm. is the goal, and glory to God is the goal. But you need, we, need, we have special revelation for that, and that's where it's like we, there's always this, this wall where it's like, okay, we have to talk about the Bible. <laughs> we have to talk about history. We have to talk about Jesus. Because it's like, man, this just changes the whole story because it informs us of the greater narrative. Because we can, we can separate ourselves from that for as long as we want, but we're always stuck with uh, creating our own biased narrative based upon what we observe. And it's like looking at an engine and being like, the engine exists because the engine exists not knowing that the designer of the engine was thinking about a road trip to Europe. <laughs> like, you know, like he had a desire in his soul. There was a purpose to it. He was thinking through it relationally and not just mechanically. But your argument about the existence of the creator of the universe because of the existence of the creator of the universe is identical to my claim that nature exists because they, nature exists. My impossibility of describing how a, something led to the existence of nature is equivalent to your inability to explain what led to the existence of God and every explanation you can give about no, no, it. But, but no, but you're, you're, you're talking about in a, a system of nature hmm. for the created world and in the universe. That's, that's a, that's a, you're talking about neurons, electrons, atoms, <laughs> quarks, all these kind of things. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a whole other reality that, we, that, that is, is the one that ordered the physical reality the mathematical equation of the world that we live in, which is completely separate in its nature. It's, yeah, that, it's, that's my claim. Yeah, yeah, it's completely separate in its nature, so it's a different story, it's a different narrative, it's a different um, uh, uh, ontological reality. That, that's what I said, that, that's, what I, that's where I'm, I was going with my argument, that my inability to explain how nature ex emerged from mm -hmm. nothingness is 
identical to your inability to explain how God emerged from nothingness previous to God's existence because God is you, eternal. You, once again, yeah, yeah, it's not it's not emerging from nothingness. Though. Yeah, that's it. It's base reality. And I would say the same about nature. Every argument that you, could, that you can use in order to explain the existence of God, I can use in order to explain the existence of nature. I would exchange nature for God in in whatever phrase or uh, articulation you create, and it would be compatible with my beliefs. Sure, but order and design comes always from a mind. Information always comes from a mind. And yeah. so th when you're taking the mind out of the nature, mm -hmm. what do you have? You don't. All you have is the mechanics. You don't have the mind ordering the mechanics. And there's some mechanics in the, creating the mind. Once, once again, you don't have the mind driving it. In, and so all you have is the mechanics of the nature. That's very different than the concept of God, where he is the mind, and within himself, he is, the, is reality itself. Hmm. And so that's a very different concept than nature. Nature is, is void of a mind. All you have is the mechanics. All you have is a bunch of tools, <laughs> a bunch of pieces, a bunch of sand, a bunch of, you know, these things. Yeah. It's, it does not order itself. It does not make itself into what it is. It is not driven by a mind uh, on its own. And therefore, it necessitates a mind. It necessitates order. It necessitates uh, the programmer going in and creating the code. And then pressing play. And then, and then what we observe is it playing through the, the, the coding that it has. And we're observing it, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and, it, and, and we're looking through it, and it's like, wow, this, we can understand this. There's a quote I love. It's, we have two lives. The second begins when we realize we only have one. It's from Confucius, one of, if not the best, philosophers from ancient China. And what does this quote bring to your mind? I would love to hear you first, so I can understand how you interpret it. It's in somewhat hypocritical because it, not hypocritical, it's in somewhat incoherent with, with itself because it claims that we have two lives and then it says that we only have one. <laughs> yeah. But at a deeper level, which is the metaphor, which it's claiming, it's not talking about the fact of two lives existing. It's just talking about the fact that there's a fundamental difference between what you believe to be the case or how you act or how you interpret the world when you haven't reflected enough and when you start to do so. Mm. There's not a limit to how much you could reflect about life and death, but realizing that there's a mortality, there's an end to to this journey that we are having mm. gives everything a, a fundamental change. It's not like you were thinking that it wasn't going to end. Mm. Maybe you were thinking of it before in an implicit manner, but it was not explicit. It wasn't, there wasn't a thought saying, I see it plausible that I will live forever. Sure. Like some people have done. I think there was a quote from a famous person who said, I intend to live forever, so so far so good. <laughs> and okay, yeah, maybe maybe that person is right, but the odds of that being true is are like one out of a hundred billion humans that have existed. So that's probably not going to be the case. But th this quote from Confucius makes me think and reflect about the fact that if something is temporary, like everything, and you can analyze it and experience it while it lasts, why not do it more? Why not do it with more dedication to it? Why not be more aware of it? Why not avoid the by default option of just going through life in an autopilot manner and just put the switch off the autopilot and be the most aware 
you can in order to take all the juice out of this experience that we have uh, that we have been granted in mm -hmm. some way mm -hmm. that's what i would think of sure no and i i i think it's uh you know in ecclesiastes uh the king he says it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party <laughs> you know because it makes you think about this transition and it forces you to reckon with the reality of death and it's more positively engaging your narrative of who you are when you have that existential problem occur in your life <laughs> and you're like oh dang i'm gonna die <laughs> and that really touches your soul and it kind of changes the whole storyline um now he goes through and, and he's writing the book of ecclesiastes at the end of his life and he had this existential problem early on in his life and then he tried to figure out how to live it out and so he says i have devoted myself to books and to learning and to knowledge but in the end i found that to be not beneficial <laughs> and then i devoted myself to creating things making things getting in the dirt creating new cities aqueducts all these beautiful things gardens wonderful things and in the end it did nothing for my soul and then he goes and says oh family would devote ourselves to family and to kids and to, and to culture and to all and to parties and all these kind of things and in the end it did nothing <laughs> to my soul and it didn't quench what my soul was looking for um, in this world and so it's this huge it's this book devoted on this existential problem of we have this eternal whole void within us that we're looking to fill with the things in the world but we weren't made to die and so we'll always find it uh taking away from us and never being able to fill that void and then in the end of the letter at the end of the, of the of the book he closes and says then in the end we have to uh fear god and obey his commandments and it's like that's the only thing that satisfies the soul uh, when it comes to the end of the day you can have extreme activity on earth forever <laughs> for thousands of years but it will never satisfy the soul but that's that feeling of insatisfaction ultimately comes from the situation that that person was embedded in i'm i know of a lot of people who do not have that grand narrative overarching everything and they at least claim to be deeply satisfied with their lives for sure so it is not until they're faced with death no 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 seneca for example <laughs> he died he committed suicide in the most onerous manner possible and i believe that that's a possibility if you take what if you take introspection far enough and you develop an enough body of wisdom you will come to similar conclusions to that to those which stoics came to 2000 years ago and christians too and there's an overlap between all the great philosophies in in humanity that they point towards similar features of the human mind some of them point to different features but the, there's some root of the nature of the human mind and the human condition which stoics buddhists and a lot of different philosophies came into and make it incredibly useful to understand and get all the fear of death away of the equation when you realize it deeply enough i believe sure and i agree people have come to the end of their life with the sense of completeness that they've come and faced death with a sense of honor or 
that they've done good enough and, and it's ready to be ended. I agree that that's a human experience. And I don't think that's the goal, though, is to come to the end of your life thinking in your own mind, I've done it. I have peace. It's like, okay, um, it's going to be a drastic surprise, I believe, that if God exists, then they're going to wake up and they're like, I missed the whole point. Because <laughs> satisfi- I, I satisfied my own standards for what life was all about. But that's not what life was all about. <laughs> and so I missed the mark. And Obviously, that, that's a, that comes from a knowledge of knowing that there's a purpose to life and there's a direction and a, and, a, and a necessity for all creatures in this world that we live in to live towards a certain direction. And so I do believe in judgment. I do believe that God is the judge and he will judge. And we can satisfy all of the standards of our own uh, 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 things in our own mind, but ultimately, our satisfaction doesn't determine the nature of reality. Where I was going with a claim that there's not a fundamental distinction between life and death, which is an intuition I've had for a while now, it's the same point to which the Schrodinger, the great physicist, was pointing towards in what was engraved in his grave. There's a quote in, which says, in part, so all being is one and only being. And that it continues to be when someone dies. This tells you that he did not cease to be. Mm-hmm. This exactly articulates what my intuition points me towards. The difference between black and white is not so when thinking of life or death. And Schrodinger was able to come to a similar conclusion. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I was I came into this conclusion without being influenced by people who thought of sure. these things before than I. Sure, mm-hmm. that, that's 100% the case. But... I would just say, these are th- these are th- people just come up with things about death because they have no idea what's next, and so this sounds good. <laughs> but now, I, w- I would only say, uh, the only reason why I believe that I know the answer to what's next is because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so, because of that public miracle in front of the world that changed everything that changes my narrative of death. So he literally says there is going to be, in in Hebrews it says that it's appointed man once to live and then to die and then judgment. And after judgment, there will be a place where you either have to be judged in the second death and that's hell. Or have the grace of God come and forgive and that's to be with God back into that unified order where the two kingdoms are together. But we all have the choice unto what direction we're going to. But there will be a second death, a spiritual death. Like First Thessalonians says, there will be a separation again at a greater extent now between God and man. But don't you feel like proof is theologically a dissolvent? Because Once again, proof is different than evidence. And we had this conversation a long time ago. Yeah, but the more with enough evidence, you can start believing that there's proof. Is gravity proven? But that's the thing which gets the closest to being proven. Okay. We can test it right now if you want, and, and it would be proven that sure. it would be. We we could garner more evidence to the thesis that gravity is true. So what I'm saying is that the more evidence you have, the more your belief is dissolved, because you're not believing. You're just it's co- well. That's the very concept of belief. It's confidence in. The evidence. That's it. If you base your argument in 
knowing a fact which is true. That's not different from a scientist which tries to reason about the world with the facts that he has come into. Sure, sure. And I'm just saying that you can, we can look at the, and study the corpse all day long, but it's not telling us about what's next for the human soul or what's next for the human experience if there is that experience with God. And so we can study the body all day long and understand its, it, in its nature. But when it comes to uh, the governing authority of the kingdom of God, that's a whole different reality. And he has that reality set the way that he wants to set it. So that's where it's like human philosophy is, I'm not against it. I think it's great up to a point because there's going to be a point where we just don't have the tools to keep going because of our ignorance. We can't get into a world that we can't get into. It's not a world that we can, that we can order in this way, but we can interact with that world through faith, through walking through it, through experiencing it, through through seeing how it's interacted in our world historically and, and how it still does in our life. Isn't the fact that that's not a falsifiable statement too convenient of a fact for it to be considered true? No, I, I point, it, point towards the evidence, and if you don't find the evidence sufficient, then reject it. Oh, no, no. I'm not saying that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't true. I, I do not know nearly enough to argue about any position in respect to this debate. What I'm saying is that isn't it convenient that the claim you did right now that there's there will be a point at which we will not have the tools to keep progressing, let's say scientifically, there there will be a point at which we cannot progress anymore. That has been claimed for like for for eternity. For since humans are humans, that has been claimed and it hasn't been proven right. But it cannot be proven wrong either, because you can always say, okay, my models were wrong only in relation to the date. This thing will eventually happen. And then it will be proven to be mm -hmm. right. In the way that you're thinking through scientific tools, yes, there's a limit. But when it comes to a relational opportunity, maybe now you're talking through a spiritual category, now you have to involve that spiritual category into your scientific mentality. <laughs> yeah, but wh why are you presupposing the fact that there's a limit to the tools when I'm questioning precisely that statement? I'm saying that the fact that you say there's a limit to the tools. And mm -hmm. I say, that, that statement is so convenient. Con it's so conveniently non-falsifiable. All the other statements that are done in science, if they are going to be scientific, they mm -hmm. have to be falsifiable. There has to be a hypothetical stance by which you can come into a vision of the world which would disprove your thesis. That can be done with gravity. We could drop a, uh, an apple and it wouldn't fall, and that would seemingly give you evidence towards the falsifiableness of of gravity. Well, there's just there's different categories no, but don't of you learning, see, right? Don't you see the difference there? there? There's not an analogous experiment that we could do to prove your, your point wrong, but there is with gravity. Why is that? There's nothing I can do to prove your point wrong, even hypothetically. I can with gravity. There's If, the, if I drop the ball and it doesn't fall, mm -hmm. gravity is disproven. There's nothing I can do to disprove your point. That's not necessarily true because How? my point's based upon evidence. Go look at the evidence and then work through the, that evidence to disprove it or not. And that's, the, that's what I said in the beginning. It's all based upon that this is something that happened not just in the mind of some person in a corner in the cave. This was a public historical reality. So let's look at the historical reality of what happened Let's look at the, the long historical prophetic reality of what happened. 
Let's see what it says. Let's see what happened historically. Let's see if those things are true or not true. And based upon the evidence, does that point us to say this is a legitimate reason to place confidence that this event is worthy to have faith in and to trust in? Okay, that's like, okay, that's a journey. That's a journey to go on. Uh, but there is a place and that, that comes and says yes or no. And that's where it's like, in the end, you, we do ha- we're not pointing to an idea and saying, just believe the idea. We're saying, look at the evidence. The evidence points to lots of ideas. Now, the, the, the core evidence points to tons of ideas about what's going to happen after we die, about judgment, about the nature of God, the person of God, and all those things. We're not saying go to those things. We're saying go to the evidence that all those things are based upon. Let's look at the rock. We'll talk about the rock, I and mean, then on the rock, the whole, the whole kingdom is built. <laughs> but let's look at the rock. You can either reject it based upon the rock or not. So that's what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. It's like, okay, if this historical thing never really happened, then everything else is just, just forget it. <laughs> that's not true. Okay. If that literal thing, that literal claim about religion was proven to be wrong by any set of biological DNA proofs that we could garner now that we couldn't before, which I'm sure there's a lot of people who are in the opposite side of the debate. Mm -hmm. There's thousands of people in both sides of the debate, people claiming with the best evidence that the resurrection didn't happen and people claiming that it did. So I'm saying what my claim is, what you were saying is false. Even if it, it was proven to be false, even if the people who say that the resurrection was not a thing, mm-hmm. we shouldn't forget about religion. What? No, but that's the thing. It, it, it does say that intrinsically within Christianity. It says that. But I'm saying, so say- it roots itself, and and and, and it, it it is true. Like if that's not true, and it's proven to be not true, mm-hmm. and it was false thing, and it doesn't connect with any of the prophecies or anything going on in the past, and it was just made up by a few guys then it should be, it should be, it's morally right <laughs> to reject it. I wouldn't say so. Absolutely. I wouldn't say so. it's a lie. It wouldn't be. There's a distinction between literal and metaphorical truth. And there's a lot of metaphors in the Bible which are true. Well, that's, that's the problem, though, is and, that it bases it and says, please, like this, there's a lot of false ideas out there. Is this the, is this the true one? This, it's based upon that literalness. In its nature. Okay, yeah, but the Bible also says that your daughter should be rocked to death, stoned to death, if she doesn't happen to be virgin at the, at the day of his wedding. And I would interpret that to the opposite side of the spectrum, saying that she should not be stoned to death if that happens to to, to be the case, that she's not a virgin at the date of, of Do you want me to answer death. that? Sure, surely <laughs> you could, but there's there's interpretations that we have to... No, no, I can answer that. Okay, because the Bible answers that question itself. Okay. Go the for Bible it. answers the Bible, and so it's not a matter of interpretation. It's the Bible answering the Bible very clearly in that regard. And so there's there's uh, uh, 613 different Old Testament laws. You have categories of those laws. You have the ceremonial law, you have the civil law, and the moral law. You have three categories of laws for the nation of Israel at a very specific time and place in history. Mm-hmm. And for this, uh, it was almost it was it was it. it the Bible interprets the Bible. So the Bible interprets it. Paul says that the law was a tutor to bring people to Christ, to show people that they need a savior. The, the, the law was like, what would it look like to have a perfect society where there's absolute perfection 
and and in the law of God, it represents the judgment of God. And so, there, if there if people go against the law, there's going to be really harsh consequences. And that's actually how God responds if He's just. I if He's that- super, 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 super holy, then any little uh, uh, mega of sin is going to be completely horrendous to His nature if we elevate His holiness. And so, His justice is is intense and severe. And so it says, look at this, look at these laws. These 613 laws are severe, are heavy in this category, and it's teaching us a lot. And then Jesus comes and says, and, and comes along and fulfills the law, because that's his whole purpose. He, and so he, from the very beginning, you have Jesus coming and says, I've come to fulfill the law. And so in Jesus, we have the satisfaction of the law complete. Now I don't have to fulfill the law perfectly because Jesus does it on my place. So he negates and he, he, he makes it so I don't have to follow the civil law anymore because in himself he fulfills it. I don't have to follow the ceremonial law anymore because in himself he fulfills it. So these categories, I don't have to live to demand because those are just to show me that I need, I need a savior. That's it. That, that was my claim. My claim was that there's a distinction between literal and metaphorical truths. Well, the, it was a literal for a, an amount of time. And, and then it was a literally satisfied in a very specific way, it's never metaphorical. I would say that at another level of analysis, it is metaphorical. There's certain things which could not be interpreted in a literal way and coexist with... And this is hermeneutics, because you work through the Bible, and there's different books with different literary styles. You have historical record, you have poems, you have prophecy, you have eschatology. So you have all kinds of different literary, and, and each and every one you have to work through, and this is just kind of the job of, of, of wanting to do good exegesis, which is letting the text reveal itself and not eisegesis, putting ourselves and our context and our interpretation and bias into the text. So you, want to, you don't want to do eisegesis by, by, by interpreting the Bible and saying, I'm going to take my biases of a 21st century person and put it into the text. I want to do exegesis. I want to let the author's intent reveal itself to me. I want to let the historical interpretation let it be what it is. I want to let the grammatical reality that this is Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew reveal itself and not interpret it in English only. I want to look at it from where it is and let it reveal itself to me. So there's like, there's the burden and it says through fear work through the scriptures for sure. But what I'm saying is that you do not interpret certain things at a literal level at that level. Because there's some other thing in the scripture telling you that you do not need to interpret that at a literal level. And that's the exact same claim I'm doing with religion as a whole. I'm saying that there's a literal interpretation of religion which would be false, even even if it was false. I'm not claiming it to be false. Even if the resurrection of Jesus was proven to be literally false, we would still need to ascribe ourselves to their values or to some of their values because it, it, they are beneficial for society. And while accepting, like Paul says, if, we, if, if it is false, then we're still stuck in our sin. Okay, because so, the whole thing about Jesus, is it does what everybody else doesn't do. It solves the problem of evil and sin in relationship with God. No other religion solves the problem. It's the only one to actually solve the root problem of humanity. <laughs> Everything else gives potential ideas of how to solve it, but never actually solves it. And so if it's not true, then yeah, you can be stuck with a bunch of moral things and ideas, but the root problem is still there of there's something inside of us that we know has a great potential for evil and we can't get rid of it. 
And is there any way to live in a way to exhaust yourself, be it morally or in whatever way you consider, so that when the day of your death comes, you consider what you did good enough to not need to do anything else? Once I think there's a, for me personally, like when I think of this world and how this world, like Paul says, it's a shadow of what is to come. It's it's a broken, foggy, dirty mirror of what reality was created to be. To be stuck in this world for a long amount of time was is never the point or purpose. This world is a mess and broken. And so it's exhausting to be here. It's hard to be here. It's a long marathon to be here. And that's why it's like, man, do I want to be forever alive here? Heck no. <laughs> this place is like a, a, a dingy, dirty motel. And then I'm going to go home <laughs> where I want to be, where I can rest. Because that place, there's eternal purpose embedded within every atom. <laughs> because God is present there. And that's a place I want to be forever. And that's a place where that can sustain my mind, my soul, my body, my existence. And it's all sustained within itself because it's the right system to exist forever. This is not the right system to exist forever. This is a horrible place that would burden you to insanity and you would eventually kill yourself. Probably. I wasn't claiming the opposite. Okay. <laughs> it's not as if I believe that there's something else which would be eternal. I'm yet, without doing reference to that, I was just saying, is there any way what you do here to be good enough so that when the moment in which you finish your journey here, you're satisfied with this stingy journey you had? I, I, lots of people have come to that place. Once again, but it's based upon their own definition and bias and perspective of what is satisfactory. And so everybody, I think a lot of people can come to a place at their old age, they're tired, they live a, they live a life, they look back, they see their family, they see their good experiences, their body's so broken that it's like, man, time's, time's up, I'm happy. I'm happy with how things went. For sure. I think totally people can get to that place. But yeah. I'm not saying that that is going to answer any, any really serious questions, though. And I don't think it's preparing, necessarily prepared for what's next. Uh, and I'm not trying to do so with pondering about death. It's not trying to think about what is after death because we cannot empirically prove that there's a, something afterwards. And whether there is an afterlife or not is something of a different topic, what I'm saying is that without a guarantee that that's the case, we should be cautious with what we do now and live up to the highest standard possible so that when we are 80 and we're looking back, we minimize the amount of regret we have at that, at that time. Do you think... It's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because it's playing dice. You either Because you have to start the journey pondering death. And I think immediately, intrinsically, you got you to gotta deal with justice. And you got to look inside and realize you are not just <laughs> perfectly. Mm -hmm. And so if there is any sense of justice to the universe, to the world, uh, if in God is in his nature, we have to deal with that. And so you can live your life and be satisfied as much as you can. But in the end, you got you to gotta face the judge. And who's ready to face the judge at the end? And somebody can be prideful and not be really understanding of who they are and say, yeah, I'll, be, I'll take whatever he, he throws at me. And we don't understand who God is. We don't that, understand what justice is. 
that makes me think of the fact that we think of the only thing which is guaranteed in life, which is death. The only thing which is guaranteed in the time you're living is that that thing is going to end. Mm. How is it that this thing, the only thing that which is guaranteed to be considered by us as a surprise? Mm. Why? Why Why is it so... I, I could reason about it from a biological perspective and from a natural selection point of view, which makes sense of for living beings to want to perpetuate themselves because that would lead to maximizing their existence through generations. And maybe that's the, the whole thing of it, the, the whole the whole explanation of the phenomenon, which is, in our case, the grief we live through when people die or when we are pondering our own death. So, yeah, why do you think that the only guaranteed thing is considered to be a surprise? Because I think death is terrifying. And so you've got to put it in the back burner. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, yes, 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 yes. The should. <laughs> the shouldn't. <laughs> but it is because life is life and you got to pay your bills. And you got to live in society and you got relationships and you want to go do these things over there. And so life is so normal. Um, and I think that's good. And life should be normal and life should be, uh, you should be in the current of life uh, or else you're just going to have an anxious existential problem for the rest of your life. <laughs> If you're always considering um, the true state of reality, uh, that it's terrifying to exist. Uh, that that living itself is is overwhelmingly crazy and strange, um, and if you're so involved, that's where anxiety comes in, and that's where if you're so involved in the problem or the or the the the, the mechanics or trying to figure it out, it's such a existential dive into chaos in in itself that it's hard uh, to maintain, and so it's actually when you have that rhythm of life. Where of purpose and life and 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 and, and interactions and relationships, uh, it 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 takes all of those things and just kind of says, you know what, this is what I'm focused on, and it puts it to the back until you're forced by your friend's suicide to once again think about that reality, or once again you got to think about it when my wife dies and I got to think about that reality. Um, so it's like you have to have to, have to solve the problem. Mm. Or that problem's going to just steal your life. <laughs> that's what. That's precisely. You, I think you nailed. You nailed it. That's where I was going with this question. That is there any way to appreciate the things you have while they are there, in order to not miss them when they are not. I mean, I come from a mentality that God kind of reveals and says everything that I have is not my own. And I think we've talked about that before. So my body, my life, my kids, my friends, my everything that I have is not my own. So I'm not an owner of anything. So if I do have anything, I have water right here. That's grace. That's a good thing I don't deserve. So I'm just going to enjoy it with peace. Um, and so I didn't earn this necessarily. I didn't create this. I didn't create water and thirst and satisfaction of thirst by water. But it's there and I have it. And so I'm going to enjoy it. And I don't have to... Um, All I, all, I, all I have to do is say, praise be to Yahweh. <laughs> It's grace. And, that's, and, and, and living in the moment is just recognizing all the grace around us, all the grace that we do have. And when things are really hard and things don't make sense and there's just evil and there's brokenness and pain, you got to have a context for that too. You have to have a story for that too. You have to have an understanding of what this means as well. 
or else it will completely eat you alive. And, 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 and I do believe that, um, that God gives context for the grace of the mundane things in life to understand it and enjoy it and the context for understanding all the brokenness and all the pain and all those things as well and brings it cohesively together to understand uh, the day-to-day. But appreciate appreciating things to a point, even if you're not the, the owner of those things, which I'm, I agree with you, I would say that going through the thought process of realizing how things only exist as long as the conditions for those things to exist are given or occur. And when conditions change, things change. The same thing occurs with everything. That, that's the general rule of the universe. If something is appropriate for that thing to happen, that thing happens. If not, it doesn't happen. And realizing that, the only constant thing is change. And the thing which constructs your body will be altered and built into some other form in the future. In the same way that it was created out of some other thing before. That's like the first philosophy. It's like Heraclitus. <laughs> yeah. You'll never be in the same river twice. Yeah. That's the con the, the concept that doesn't change is change. Neither the man, neither the river are the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that makes me think of the 9.6 or however long the universe has been, I think 9.7 billion years. It, it's been speculated by physicists to be as how long the universe has existed for since the Big Bang. What was it like for me to not have existed for all that time? I think something analogous will occur after I live. The thing, we are in a moment between two abyss of time, which are infinite potentially, and it just happens that we are here. Have you ever had like a like a existential crisis thinking about that not really like it gives you like anxiety or no no a lot no. of people do it, it, it does not with me I don't know why it just maybe I would say the conditions for me to have anxiety with that thought are not given so I simply do not have it mm-hmm. <laughs> that's <laughs> the most honest response I could give mm. or I, I don't know why but that doesn't give me anxiety and I understand why it would to other people but I think I've come to some conclusion or some yeah, some, I, I've, I've come to some conclusion which eliminates that anxiety that if some other people also came to this conclusion, they would also avoid it. And once again, I don't think anxiety or fear is the proper reason to believe in things to give comfort. Truth is better than hope, right? It is independent of hope. It has to be. And we have to confide more in truth than in a hope that things will go in a better way. And I think that's totally at the center of, of, of everything as well. I think truth necess- like necessitates us to look at the problem, experience the anxiety, if there is there any anxiety, and then move forward with what's potential and what's, uh, what's necessary to point us in the direction of understanding that. Because the anxiety towards death only comes from believing that there's some awareness in death, and there's not. Epicurus... Had, has well, it goes break. backwards because if that's true, then it goes backwards, and it and it begins to deconstruct meaning in life, and it it begins to deconstruct experiences, relationships, and uh, it's it, it 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 tends to steal life away once you let it free. So if that's the reality of nothingness before, nothingness after, and this is just a blip, then everything in its nature is deep nihilism. 
And, and I think that has a huge impact on the day-to-day. And would, I think it necessitates a huge impact on the day-to-day. Would you say that the fact that uh, sunset is temporary makes it worthless? No, because it points me to I, I, need, I, need a, I need a greater narrative or else, like Camus says, beauty will cause chaos, <laughs> cause, cause, cause him chaos because he wished that he could grasp it and hold on to it forever. Um, but he can't. And so it just reminds him that, that it's meaningless. So actually beauty itself caused him a greater anxiety because he knew that he couldn't hold on to it. But that, that thought is recursively fake. If you analyze, okay, you claim that I do not have a meaning, a, far, a superior meaning in my life because I do not believe in any superior entity which created the universe. But I could say the same about your meaning. What is the meaning of your meaning? Is your meaning self-sustaining? And if it is, mine is also. So what is the meaning of your meaning? If it has something great in it, okay, what is the meaning of the meaning of the meaning? There's always a point of, self-fulfilling prophecy which does not need anything else meaning emerges out of ether always ether what do you mean hmm? what do you mean ether like no- nothingness it comes from in in existence in my case and it does in yours why why in my because whether you believe that there's an entity which is omnipresent and omnipotent you do not reason about its existence being subjected to anything else you just assume its existence why wouldn't I have the same tool to assume the existence of the universe itself without the requirement of that superior entity? I already worked through that with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's why. I'm, I'm saying that yeah, yeah. The, the, same, the same argument... So once again, the mind, the eternal mind of God is different than the mechanics of the universe. And so when he, in his nature, has an eternal... This is the interesting part of God. It says in the Bible he's unchanging. So in his nature... When he says that there is the center of all meaning comes to the point of to give God glory. So it's like, okay, that changes the narrative of everything. And so why is God doing anything? It's ultimately to give him glory and for our enjoyment and pleasure within that. So of experiencing that. So that meaning is never going to change because it's based upon his nature. And so that's an eternal meaning based upon the very nature of God and therefore the nature of reality. And whatever is within that reality is within the confines of that. Um, And it can either go towards that or go away from that. There's a great quote from Epicurus, which kills the fear of death, I think. I will will read it to you. Death is nothing to us. When we exist, death is not. And when death exists, we are not. All sensation and consciousness ends with death, and therefore, in death, there is neither pleasure nor pain. The fear of death arises from the belief that in death there is awareness. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's great. Unless there is awareness, <laughs> just, yeah. Unless there is awareness. If we are able to understand what awareness emerges out from, we would be able to explain how there's no awareness after life, but we do not know what emerges, what makes awareness emerge. I believe God created the world in a way where there's going, the the mechanics of how we exist are very finely tuned. And so there is a mechanism for embodying and, and making awareness possible. 
And so, yeah, one day it will be discovered on it, how the, it couldn't be otherwise. What's that? It couldn't be otherwise. Sure, because that's the idea in the Bible: is body and soul are one thing. No, no, no. I was claiming that it couldn't be otherwise. That everything is finely tuned to our awareness to be to permit its existence. I think there's a few co constants of the universe which are aligned one to the 200th power, which is absurd. Uh, there's a few of them, and they are extremely, according to arbitrary rules that you could use to analyze the fine-tuning. Those are a few within thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, and, then, and all of those thousands. And then you talk about the... And you talk about information in DNA, and you talk about how the systems are, and that just increases it. <laughs> But... <laughs> Yeah, it it is exponential as you add more factors to the equation and how all of them should exist should coexist to permit your existence, you realize how the probabilities are not high or are extremely low, but it couldn't be otherwise that those are given because consciousness has a continuity in itself. You do not perceive yourself not perceiving, so whatever amount it has taken for those physical constants to be given in order to permit your awareness, you're only In the same way that you jump from the night to the morning and you do not perceive yourself not perceiving while you are sleeping, there's some thoughts going on, there's some dreams, I'm sure, but there's some sense in which you jumped that, mm -hmm. that it, it's an instant. Yeah, yeah. The same thing happens with whatever other time has occurred mm -hmm. between your existence and, and your non-existence. It's like you were taking a, a, a general anesthesia I and agree, yeah, yeah. you... That's why, yeah. That's why the the old way of talking about death is like sleep. Yeah, they are sleeping now, <laughs> but they're dead. <laughs> but, but they use the, the way of sleeping, and I, I and every day I think is like a is a little life. There's a little death and a life. You go and you are created in the morning, and you die at night. And every single day is a little life. It's a little story, <laughs> and we all have to deal with that story and go to bed. Um, and and figure out how are we going to deal with going to bed. We have to stop working. We have to stop living in order to give up the work and die in the bed <laughs> and then start again the next day um, with a whole new life. And then so it's like, yeah, there is this, uh, this, uh, this understanding that we all have that if death is just nothingness and we just go to sleep, we can understand what that would be like because we've experienced little moments of that. But then that's where I was like, I, I can understand that. And that's why I said in the very beginning, there's like, there's just two categories of thinking. I understand how people think in the world. And that's the categories that they use to understand that. But because of special revelation, there is going to be an awakening. And it's just like we're sleeping and we experience that. And then we awaken and it's going to be a new awakening to a new area in a new way. And the only way I know that is through special revelation. <laughs> and that's similar to what I was saying that In the same way that I think that in the same way that we do not fear going to bed and mm -hmm. metaphorically dying sure. for those eight hours, we shouldn't fear death in when we are 80. Mm. because it it's just a, a, an analogous change which is not substantial. It, it will just mm. it will just jump from one moment to the other, and if it if you do not, eternity will feel like nothing. Mm. There's a great quote from Richard Dawkins, which I think is. I think this this quote represents quite well what makes me not fear death itself, even if it's something which I love pondering. This is the quote from Richard Dawkins. We are going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they are never going to be born. 
the potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grains of Arabia. Certainly, those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively exceeds the set of actual people. In the teeth of those stupefying odds, it is you and I, in our ordinariness, that are here. We privileged few, who won the lottery of birth against all odds. How dare we whine at our inevitable return to that prior state from which the vast majority have never stirred? What makes you think of? It just makes me frustrated. Why? Because it's it's trying to put uh, uh, the, the human story and all its uh, hu hubris and pompous on the top shelf and says, to hell with God, to hell with his story, to hell with revelation, to hell with Jesus, to hell with the resurrection of, a, of the dead. And it just, it makes uh, the individual modern man uh, the superhuman that he has always dreamed of being, a godless creature of carbon and, and chemicals. And that is not the story of reality. And that's what's so sad because that is a poetic um, picture of accepting something, but people will resurrect, people will stand in judgment, and people will not be ready for that. And that's not preparing people for that moment. And that's where it's like, man, we need to get right with God here, right now. That's what this is all about. It's all about choice. Are we going to live in the kingdom of death or the kingdom of life? Because that is the kingdom of death. <laughs> but the only problem is he's going to go and live in nothingness, but consciously. And that's what he's not prepared for. But that's what his evidence points to. I, <laughs> I believe he also rejects a lot of evidence. He could claim the same with you? Yeah. And that's where everybody has free will to choose down here. On this earth, we got to, we got to search into it. We have to pursue truth. And there's a lot of things that we have to go after and make choices on. And then open up ourselves up. And we're going to do that for various reasons. And, but I think everybody needs to have a moment of opening themselves up to being right with God. Death smiles at us, at us all. All we can do. This is my back. Okay. <laughs> what do you think of this per perspective? Uh, <laughs> when it's there face to face, uh, we can try to smile, but it you can you can kind of like uh, put it in this idea of a peaceful category of when you're 80 years old and and you have your family around you and everything's so peaceful and you transition so softly, but. It could be tomorrow driving the car and you're just begging just one more day, <laughs> just one more moment, you know? And so once death is there, it goes against our human nature. So even the people who have died, it, it goes against our human nature. It doesn't, we don't want to stop and we want to keep living even when it's there. We'll accept it when it's there if we feel confident to do that, but that doesn't mean that we want it to necessarily stop we might kill ourselves because life is so painful but that doesn't mean that we necessarily wanted it to stop we wish life was different you know life is unsatisfactoriness yeah we just wish life was different we want to live just not under these conditions and we always pursue to something else <laughs> but i think that there's a way of considering your life to be satisfactory and it is not by adding things but by subtracting 
this has been a realization that a lot of different philosophies has have come to, among which the Buddhists and the Stoics. That the the way to satisfy your desires is not by fulfilling them, but by eliminating them, because you will always have more desires. Let's say you want what do you want? You want a million euros? You will want another million euros. What what do you want? Be the CEO of a super multi multi. Yeah, people, people, people have been trying to figure out the equation and balancing it left and right. Get it all the stuff or get none of the stuff. <laughs> it's like that's what like Confucianism and um, and Buddhism and is. It's not necessarily even a religion. It's just we're trying to figure out how to get through this life without being so burdened by death and by suffering. And don't you think that they have succeeded? No, <laughs> not at all. I think they have. No, no, no. I don't, not at all. Um, I think uh, I think it's a very selfish pursuit. Number one. Because it focuses, everybody in the religion focuses on themselves, on the individual. Now, some branches, they have a higher concept of once I figure out myself, then I'll start helping other people. But it just so happens that it takes like forever to figure out yourself, <laughs> like even more lives than this one. And so you got to go through all kinds of karmic cycles and all kinds of things and all kinds of uh, experiences uh, for yourself first before you can even help other people. So it does center itself primarily on the self and trying to figure out how can you get free from all the junk going on. And I just think that that that's a lifelong, for them, an eternity-long process that Jesus can complete in one second by grace through forgiveness. So they can work as hard as they want. It's just work, 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 meditate, 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 ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. Turn the wheels, turn the wheels, turn the wheels, meditate, meditate. It's like, it's so much work for eternity and it's just exhausting. And Jesus is like, ask and you shall receive. That's good. That's good news in comparison to, I've, I've said in those cultures, it is a lifelong just work, 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 work mentality of trying to get rid of all this karmic trash that we have. <laughs> why, why are you so lazy to not want to accept? Lazy? It's a stupid pursuit. You say, okay, this guy's naked, climb to the top of the mountain. Okay, I'm going to do it. Uh. And Jesus is like, just ask and I'll fly you to the top of the mountain. And then it's like, all these people are suffering their whole lives, not even knowing if it's going to do anything, but they're hoping that it will. And they're just naked on the mountains, freezing and cold and suffering. And they're like, yeah, we're suffering. No, you're not getting to the top. You're dying before you get there. And with the hope that in the next life, you'll continue the journey. And Jesus is like, to the top of the mountain, just like that, by grace. That's not a good representation of all the philosophies I, I, I'm planning to, <laughs> to be talking about. I, I, the, the Stoics do not believe in uh, an afterlife. Do you? Yeah, yeah, the Stoics are different than the Buddhists. Sure. Yeah. And, and the, claim, the, 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 the quote is just told you about death smiles at us all week. All we can do is just smile, smile back, was mm -hmm. by Marcus Aurelius. You should read Justin Martyr. Um, and uh, the guys uh, in that time, because they were Greek philosophers, and then they became Christians. And the things that they wrote are specifically towards, man, I was that. I was in that world, and I know it in and out. And so we can have little snippets of what Greek philosophy is here, but it's so much more deep when you go back into it and the way that they thought about the world. Their cosmovision, like their worldview, was so much more deep than just a, a little a little quote. They believed in so many things and so many ways of ordering things, of reality. It's like super deep. 
And then you try to work through like things like Justin Water when he's talking to Celsius and and he's like working through all these things. And it's just like these people have so many ideas I had never even considered or thought about. But because he was deep in it, he knew. And so that's like maybe uh, one fruit from a whole garden of trees. When you go to the actual gardens, I would say that you and your worldview would feel very uncomfortable in the garden that they have created. And wouldn't they also feel enormously uncomfortable seeing my world because I know of a lot of scientific facts which would destroy their intuitions? Sure. Like I can explain how the thing that builds your body is created, a cell, DNA. To the, extent, yeah. the, the Earth is not in the middle of the solar system, neither in the middle of the galaxy. There's a lot of concepts which has have been Again, created. thousand years and years. Just I'm, yeah. what, I'm, what I'm saying is that I do not know who would be more uncomfortable, either them seeing my world or mm. me seeing their world. Mm. But that I am the only one who's able to see the other person's world because they are dead and not able sure. to see mine. I'm just saying you can't, you can't like uh, take one quote of a Stoic and assume your worldview and just steal it from their system. Get into it to where they're really weirdly talking about things because <laughs> they're, they're using all kinds of ideas and, and names and, and thoughts and systems and they order it in a way that's just bizarre, just bizarre. And you can work through it. It's, it's all there. You can read it. But it's like uh, once you get it deep into the worldview, the, the system that produces that is uncomfortable. <laughs> but you might agree on the fruit based upon your worldview. There's a quote which I loved that it is, Growth and comfort do not coexist. I think this is entirely right. It's why would my growth go through require the comfort? I, I think that if, if I'm seeking for growth, maybe I should say no to the comfort. So maybe exposing myself to those ideas would be the correct thing, no matter how uncomfortable they are. And I do not think that they would be as uncomfortable as you're claiming because I, I've been exposed to many different ideas. I don't know how different from what if you've been exposed to a wide range of ideas and you've more or less been able to manage them, how more different can ideas be than that? I, I don't think there's ideas too far from what I've already been exposed to because I'm, I'm just a, a human being which has been exposed to life for a, a, a few years and maybe this wouldn't happen with other people. I'm sure it would with others, but I, I'm not sure if that claim that it would be tr tr tremendously uncomfortable is, is true. It would be just a whole other category of thinking that you'd have to get accustomed to. And so there's going to be, I mean, I get, I, 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 I sometimes read a Jewish midrash and, and just the way that they talk is just foreign. You start thinking about Islamic theology and the way that their scholars communicate one to another. They're so deep into a formal way of communicating one to another that it's just jarring. <laughs> and so it's like you might take concepts, but once you're in it, and you, there's a whole world there, and it's uh, and and it's just getting getting to know how that world thinks and how that world works through their information. I think that the principal objective of why I'm doing this, or of why I thought of pondering death as a good title for a, an episode, is basically that I'm trying to come into a conclusion which would avoid future suffering, if realized that I came to that conclusion in the future. Hmm. If if when I'm let's say 40 years old and something tragic occurs in my life, and I'm able to go back to this episode, listen to it, and realize how I came to a conclusion which was analogous to that which I would conclude after the death of someone important in my life, hmm. I would in some way not suffer as much. Because I was 
Let, let's say you've already thought of things not existing. And when things stop existing and you hear yourself talking about how those things exist, but they will stop existing. It's like if you do, if you take a, a video of yourself talking with your grandparents and you tell them, hey, are you aware that you will not be here and that I will be watching this video while you're not here? Mm. What will my future self want me to ask you? Because you're now, you're, you're currently here. What is it that I have to do in order to satisfy myself in the future so that I am not I do not feel like there's something I have I had to do. Hmm. And that thought itself eliminates a lot of the suffering. That's my principal point that I wanted to cover in this episode and I think we did. Hmm.